I'm told that not so long ago, kids around the world would uh, sit beneath the tree every Christmas and unwrap the latest edition of the Guinness Book of World Records. There was, and still is, something quite thrilling, apparently, about seeing that the woman with the world's longest fingernails uh, or learning the fastest time to roll an orange one mile with your nose. It happens to be 22 minutes and 41 seconds, if you're curious. But in recent years, the Guinness World Records uh, has had to compete against the like of YouTube and TikTok, and uh, it's survived thus far but at what cost? Now, that was the subject of a recent uh, Guardian long read penned by Imogen West Knight, a freelance writer back in London, and she joins us now to talk about her place, her piece titled The Strange Survival of the Guinness World Records. Welcome to the Little Wireless Program, Imogen. What on earth got you interested in this in the first place? <laughs> Um, so I went to, uh, I used to spend quite a lot of time in Dublin and I went to the Guinness Brewery tour, um, which was good, which was fine. Um, but there was this room that was sort of semi off limits and I, you know, curiosity got the better of me and I went and had a look in there and found a load of Guinness World Records books. And I'd never thought about the connection between the brewery and the World Records company before. And so I went and did some digging and, found out what the connection was and then sort of got thinking that it was a bit odd that the book does still exist and wanted to know how it operates these days. Well, how did it start? I understand uh, Sir, um, Sir Hugh Beaver, who was the MD of Guinness, was the fired the starting pistol. Yeah, he did. So he and a party of friends went um, shooting in Wexford in, I think it was must be 19... 51 um and they were having this argument about what the fastest game bird was and they argued and they argued and they didn't know and so no one could put this argument to rest and he thought about this argument on and off for a few years and then realized that arguments like that must happen all of the time especially in pubs (laughs) (laughs) right and so he thought why not put together a book that could tell people what these definitives were in the world um and then you could stock them behind the bar at pubs that serve guinness I, when I was a little boy, what I wanted to unwrap at Christmas would be a Hornby clockwork train. I understand that you were a kid that loved her Guinness Book of Records. I was. I remember getting them and it was usually at Christmas. I think my first annual was 2002. It had this great holographic cover and then my brother and I sort of poured over it and looked at the pictures. And it was so rich. I think, you know, as a little kid, this book with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces of pure fact was just irresistible. Now, before we push on, is there still a link, a connection between Guinness the Stout and Guinness the Book? No, no link anymore, just the name. Um, the company, has it's actually changed hands a load of times, but yeah, no connection anymore. Okay, now you posit that there are four types of Guinness World Record. Please elaborate. <laughs> so I think the four types are there's records that are broken without being record-breaking attempts. So most words in a hit single, most venomous snake, that kind of thing, where where an attempt wasn't made to break a record, but it is nonetheless a record. Then there's a load of sort of sporting ones, which naturally lends itself to record 
type facts like longest tennis match, fastest knockout in boxing match, that kind of thing. Then there are the really memorable ones from when you're a child, which are things that seem to sort of exist just in order to be records, the kind of fantastical things like largest toast mosaic, tallest, you know, I don't know, tower made out of Rubik's cubes. Or the fastest time to roll an orange one mile with your nose. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Um, And then the fourth kind is sort of marketing stunts, so things that have been invented in order to give a company publicity, like the largest pizza being done by some place in Texas in order to promote their business. Now, what is involved in making or breaking a Guinness World Record? How does the process sort of work? Well, it depends who you are. If you're a business, it works one way. But if just you or I wanted to break a record, you have to apply to Guinness to get the guidelines for the record that you want to break. And those can run to dozens of pages, depending on how complex the record is. And then either you can pay to have an adjudicator from Guinness come and watch you, but that's very expensive. So people don't tend to do that. What you can also do is film your attempt. You have to have an independent witness and a, you know a stopwatch accurate to however many milliseconds, depending on what you're doing. And then you submit that evidence to Guinness and they eventually get back to you to confirm whether they're satisfied that you broke the record and you get the certificate. I'm interested in these adjudicators. We recently did a story on Wikipedia and Wikipedia have Wikipedians who, you know, are responsible for assuring the quality of the entries. Tell me about the adjudicators who cost £6,000 if you uh, want them to adjudicate. Yeah, no, it's pricey these days. So they're they're fascinating people. They're mostly freelancers, although I think although I think they have some full time people. Um, but they're travelling all around the world on kind of almost no notice, and they're not allowed to know what the record is before they agree to the mission, because otherwise adjudicators could select things that they found more interesting. And it's a job they take pretty seriously. They have a uniform. They're not allowed to fraternise after hours with the records breakers. And yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating life they lead. What I find so intriguing is that they've got to keep a straight face. They can't, uh, <laughs> they can't laugh up their sleeve, or if they do, they're they're in trouble. Yeah, although I think in some ways they probably find that quite easy because they do take it seriously. You know, one of them that I spoke to said they have to treat every single record as though it's Usain Bolt breaking the hundred meters. It must be quite heartbreaking sometimes for an adjudicator to tell a person or a group that they've failed. Yeah, I think it is difficult, and especially when they do sort of sponsored things by schools. You know, you get a bunch of eight-year-olds in a room and tell them they're going to get a Guinness World Record, and then you have to tell them actually no. That is a bit, that's a bit difficult part of the job, I think. Can can the job be dangerous? I think so. I mean, there was, they, they introduced hostage training for the adjudicators after a sort of slightly hairy incident in the Philippines where... Nothing actually went wrong, but they were trailed by armed guards that had been hired by the mayor of the town. And they suddenly thought, oh, actually, maybe (laughs) this is the sort of thing that people should be trained to do if they're going to be working for us. Because people do get very disappointed sometimes and, and aggressive even if they don't get granted their record. My guest is Imogen West Knight, that's with a hyphen, and she's a freelance writer based in London. And as you can hear, she's been studying the Guinness Book of World Records, which takes us to the super record breakers you uh, you meet, and they're in a class of their own. 
Yeah, they really are. So these are people who've sort of turned record-breaking into almost a sport in its own right. So I don't know, some people will be very, very good at juggling and will have a number of juggling records and then leave it at that because that's their specific skill set. But these are people who have realized that with enough determination and time, there are lots and lots and lots of different records that are actually breakable um, and collect them. So one of the people I met had over 700 over his lifetime. You know, I, I should be in the Guinness Book of World Records because I've been sitting here doing this job for decades, for decade after decade, <laughs> and I think I've interviewed more professors than anyone in the history of interviewing. So I'm going to, well, I'm, I'm, going to put, I'm going to put in a submission, and I'm I'm happy to pay that exorbitant fee. But uh, let's 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 stick with the super record breakers. Tell me about David Rush. David Rush is a teacher uh, who lives in Boise, Idaho, and he he actually didn't have any records at all uh, until he turned 30, and he actually started with juggling. He was good at juggling, broke some juggling records, and then realised that he had this capacity to dedicate the time and effort to breaking records and thought that this was a good way to promote STEM education, which is his sort of thing that he cares a lot about. So he breaks an average of a record every week. And I don't know how many hundreds of them he's got at the moment, but well, lots. Well, I, I know because I read your piece. It's 250. <laughs> but there you go. Now, now, come on, Imogen. You haven't mentioned that David juggles blindfolded. He does juggle blindfold. I mean, he does all sorts of mad things. He does it blindfolded, backwards, over great distances. It's incredible. <laughs> okay. Oh, three cheers for David. Silvio uh, Saba, please. Silvio Saba is a gym owner from Milan, and he has lots of records to do with kind of physical strength and endurance. Um, I think he's the person who's got the most current records um, and he really tries quite hard to defend those. But his real genius thing is that he has this, it's mostly to him apparently strategical rather than a physical feat, in that he's really good at identifying what he calls soft records. So records that he thinks haven't yet been broken to the full capacity of what most people could do if they tried very hard. So he identifies one of these and then he doesn't break it to his full ability because he likes to be able to, if someone then breaks his record, he wants to know he can go back and just break it again. Esrita <laughs> Furman. Esrita, he's the real kind of god of it all. He was the first super record breaker. He's the one who's got over 700 of these certificates. He is, well, his real name is Keith, but he renamed himself Esrita as part of his following of this Indian spiritual guide called Sri Chinmoy. Um, lives in a very kind of normal house in Jamaica, Queens, but has lived this absolutely fantastic life. You know, he's travelled all over the world doing things like underwater pogoing, standing on yoga balls. He's got, I think, currently the record for the <laughs> for the orange push to mile with his nose. Oh, he's um, the, well, he's yeah, my he's I my hero. He's, he's my hero. <laughs> but you're my hero too because you actually tried to break a world record yourself. I did try. So I went into the Guinness office for the first time in London and they wanted me to have a go and I wanted to have a go. So they picked a record for me that they thought was, you know, doable in the office. And the one they picked was standing on one leg blindfolded, which I was really surprised actually that that only stood at something like 31 minutes. 
I've I've and done that for hubris. I've done that for therapeutic <laughs> reasons after surgery. Right? No, people do, and it's yeah, bloody so hard. <laughs> well, I had no idea. I'd never tried. So I sort of thought there was a tiny part of me that thought maybe you know maybe this is my secret skill. Anyway, I was hopeless. I think I got like thirty seconds before I fell over, but. I after I met Ashley Furman in New York, I was telling him about this record and he said, you know, that is doable if you cared enough about it. Um, so I went home and I was practicing and practicing. I got up to like 12 minutes, I think, <laughs> when I thought to check whether anyone had broken it. And they have. And now it's something like an hour and seven minutes. And I just thought, no, sod that. <laughs> That's too much effort. The more I talk to you, the more I think I should be in the Guinness Book of Records for interviewing Imogen West Knight, but uh, okay, it probably comes as a surprise to most listeners that the Guinness World Records is still around. How has it managed to survive the age of social media? Well, it's made this sort of canny turn to um, marketing itself to businesses, PRs, that kind of thing. So, you know, let's say you've got a car dealership. You can go to Guinness and say, I want to do some kind of promotional thing for the car dealership. Help me come up with a record that's going to get picked up by the press. Um, And they'll help you do that. And those packages uh, start at about £11,000, I think. So most of them, I think half of the money they make at the moment comes from that side of the business. And uh, critics bemoan this. They think of uh, Guinness as selling out. Yeah, they think it's become sort of too impersonal, too big business. But, I mean, what Guinness say about that is that it's only ever sort of appended to the book stuff. And you can't buy your way into the book. The stuff that gets in the book is only ever the most interesting, most eye-grabbing records. You're not afraid of confrontation. You actually confronted the editor-in-chief of Guinness World Records when you asked him about the the relevance and uh, and direction of the business. Well, I think you kind of have to if you're going to write a piece like this because that's Reader's first question, right? Is you know why does any of this still matter? Why bother keeping up with it? And I think I did. I was sort of quite persuaded by him that I think it's. It's nice that there is somebody in the world that is keeping track of these things. You know, you can you can Google something, try and find out a record. But the thing about Guinness is that they've done the measurements and they've got a code that they keep these measurements too. And I, I do think there's a value there. But you've dived deep and you've discovered something essentially human about uh, people breaking records or trying to. Yeah, I think... The moment that I sort of realised that was, I was looking into that record of the woman with the longest fingernails, which is this quite sort of iconic record that a lot of people remember seeing pictures of. And I found out the woman who currently holds that record didn't want her name in a book or care about the record. It was that she used to get her nails done every week with her daughter. And then her daughter died and she vowed never to cut her nails again. And I just thought, I think behind so many of these records that seem sort of wacky or stupid, there's someone pursuing something that is meaningful to them. I find that absolutely poignant. And you found other stories yeah, like too. this. Yeah, yeah, there was, what were some other ones? I mean, that, that you really, you can go on and on. I think you'll always find someone pursuing a passion. But another one that stayed with me is there was a man who for many years held the record for the largest collection of four-leaf clovers. And he collected every single one of them from prison grounds in Pennsylvania where he was serving a life sentence. I think we should have a minute's silence for that. That is also (laughs) exquisitely poignant. Anyway, look, we've run out of time. (laughs) That that even happens when you're discussing records. 
Well, look, I thank you very much for coming on. I've been talking to Imogen West Knight, a freelance writer based in London, and her long read titled The Strange Survival of Guinness World Record can be found on the Guardian website. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.